This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone. This is a special one-off episode of the podcast that we're making with returning guest Arjun Murti. You may remember Arjun from our ESG mini-series in November. He is a senior advisor at Warburg Pincus and a board member of ConocoPhillips. Now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine represents a devastating attack on Ukrainian and European democracy, and our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine as they courageously defend their freedom. As investors, we must consider the implications that this crisis has on energy markets. In this episode, Juan, Andrew, and Arjun discuss the effects that the ban on Russian oil and gas has had on a global scale, including in emerging markets, how the narrative around energy security has come to a forefront and what that means in the energy transition movement, and how different supplies of energy must react to the crisis in both immediate and long-term horizons. By way of definitions, Andrew will reference EMP in one of his questions this episode. EMP stands for Exploration and Production, and is the early stage of energy production, which includes searching and extracting oil and gas. Enjoy. Arjun Murthy, welcome back to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back. How are you, sir? It's great. I love your intros, Juan. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me again. So um, last time you were around, uh, it was when we did our miniseries on ESG. And we had a lot of fun on that uh, episode, a lot of very good ideas and, and reading of what was happening back then. And since that uh, recording, you have launched a Substack. Can you uh, tell us what is that about? You know, Juan, our conversation was in part one of the motivations to launch a Substack. It's arjunmurdy.substack.com. The title is called Super Spiked. And it was really kind of my growing frustration with how everyone talked about this energy transition era. And I find people, and again, as your audience I think now knows, I come from an American's perspective. My whole life and career has been focused here, covering originally the traditional sector, now increasingly a broader swath of renewables and new energy companies and so forth. But there's such extremism. People are in the bucket of either I'm only about climate or I'm only about fossil fuels, and, I don't, and neither extreme makes sense. And these joint issues of energy availability, affordability, security, and reliability absolutely have to go hand in hand with our goal to have as low of a carbon uh, and environmental footprint as possible. So it was it was a motivation. And really, my conversation with you and your colleague at the time, I think, illustrated that need to have just a different type of dialogue than we're having out there. We've since, unfortunately, had this, this very tragic situation in Ukraine um, I think it's illustrated some of the challenges that we talked about in the last podcast, Juan, and something that has been a feature of my Substack, which is trying to address the totality of our energy and climate challenges, and not just one issue. It can't just be about either climate or only about energy affordability or any one thing. We need to deal with it all. We couldn't agree with that uh, more. And your Substack started with only a written format, but you have moved into videos and we can find them in, in YouTube as well. How, how is that going? You know, um, what, so I'm, I'm in my early 50s. I, I don't feel as old as that number makes it sound. I mean, one of the things is you have to connect in a, in a, in a modern way. So the beginning of my career would have been 
written reports that you mailed out to people and ultimately PDFs and emails. But I think people consume information through either podcasts or YouTube videos. Younger people tend to react better to some of the video formats. I'm still an old-fashioned reader. And so I'm really trying to appeal to as broad of a group as possible. I will also say my initial sort of, so I'm, you know, I was the Goldman analyst for a long time writing for our clients, but it became kind of de facto public writing, if you will. And then it's been seven years where I've had a much more private role as an advisor and board member and consultant and these kind of things. And I, I kind of got sucked into Twitter a little bit uh, when oil fell to minus 37. And again, uh, I had to make friends with social media. That is something as an older person, I think you need to do. You need to engage with it in a way that works for you. Uh, and in my case, um, a lot of my former clients, a lot of executives are actually on Twitter. So you push all the political stuff that makes you mad to the side and you focus in on energy or markets or whatever is your interest. And the limiting factor of Twitter is it's hard to get a lot of nuance in there. Um, and, and really, again, I really enjoyed our conversation. And it was one of the motivations to saying, I need a longer form style of writing here. That was the Substack, But then with it, sometimes you can't explain something in written format. It's better in your own words, hence the video slash audio feeds of these things. Really interesting. Hi there, Arjun. Good, good mm. to chat to you. Um, first question, just, just to kick off, um, we'll start at the kind of global level, I guess, and then come back into some, some other issues. Just um, some of the consequences of the higher oil and gas prices we're seeing. Um, perhaps outside Western, Western Europe and the Western world, so the there's a push and a pull, I guess, isn't there? The high prices, do they drive you more quickly towards the transition to renewables and, and some of the other kinds of uh, new power generation that we've talked about before? Um, or do they force you back to, in the developed world in particular, to some of the cheaper, more immediate energy sources like thermal coal and those sorts of things? So how do you think, the, the you know, putting all the other stuff to the side, the simple fact that we have much higher prices now affects those, um, those dynamics? I feel like this is the classic Rorschach test that whatever your preconceived view of the world was, this example of Russia, Ukraine helps confirm it. So if you thought we needed to only transition to renewables and forget about all the old stuff, this is going to say, hey, I want to double and triple down. Look how bad dependent on oil and gas is. Uh, if you were in the opposite camp of saying, hey, I'm somewhat skeptical of how quickly people want to transition, this will be the proof point that, hey, see, we we told you that we needed more oil and gas. And I, I again, I, I really would push back on both extremes. We need more of all of the above, and we need all the collection of energy issues to be addressed. In dealing with something like energy security, uh, the idea that you'd want to limit oil supply in friendly countries, and I'm going to use a judgmental term there, friendly, good countries like the United States, like Canada, frankly, even like areas of the North Sea and Europe. Why would you want to limit those areas if all that happens is you end up being more dependent? I'm going to call them bad areas, places like Russia. Uh, again, I'm American. I'm going to put Iran in that bucket. And there are other countries that I think are geopolitically quite challenged. In a world where we still currently have 100 million barrels a day of oil demand, uh, I don't understand that perspective that we should attack and limit the areas we have control over, which are US, Canadian, European oil companies and their oil fees as an example. But the opposite also doesn't hold, which is clearly we need to continue to focus on transitioning. As an example, one of the big disappointments 
has been the lack of fuel efficiency gains. That's especially true in the US. I think it's less true in Europe. I think Europe's done a better job on this front. But in the US, really since the last major energy crisis, the Arab oil embargo years, we've had 40 years of almost no fuel economy gain. And one of the things that will come out from this higher, more volatile price environment will likely be a shift back towards more fuel efficient cars and potentially accelerate the shift to electric vehicles. And so my basic message is, you need to always solve for the totality of energy issues. We are still using 100 million barrels a day of oil demand. It makes no sense to limit oil supply in the US, Canada, or Europe, and therefore become more dependent on Russia. But on the other hand, we still want to invest in things like wind and solar. I think nuclear, that should be one of the kind of, let's turn back to it and think about it, type technologies uh, as a result of this recognition that both wind and solar are intermittent and we need baseload power. Some of that baseload power is going to have to come from natural gas during the transition for probably quite a long period of time, but nuclear comes back. So we're always trying to solve for all these things. And I reject the idea that either this is confirmation that we should only have oil and gas or confirmation that we should only have renewables. Neither of those philosophies makes any sense. So, so if you think about that kind of middle way that you're you're laying out there is the best way to go. I guess the people that sit in the middle of that way are the are the oil majors in terms, and it's where they direct their capex that that will or can affect a lot of this, along with some of the the SOEs. Uh, and previously, I, I guess the pressure was to put as much of that capex as possible t- towards renewables. So if, if you were sat within one of the, the oil majors today, how would you be weighing up that capital allocation decision versus maybe where you would have been a year ago? So I, I want to make sure I'm clear on a couple points. So my view, I do not view as a compromise. You did not use that word, but I want to make sure the audience understands it. I'm not suggesting that we should either compromise on climate or the environment or that we should compromise to ensure oil or gas or something else is cheap. We are trying to solve for availability, affordability, reliability, security with as small of a climate and environmental footprint as possible. And I think the only way to do that is to ensure that during the transition era, while we're ramping on new technologies, of which wind and solar is still new, it's not always the cheapest. That's one of the misinformation pieces that comes out of the climate crowd. It's certainly cheap in some places, but how cheap it is, is it when the sun isn't shining? It's infinitely expensive at that moment in time. So you darn well better either have battery storage, ideally, or other forms of backup power generation. How is it that the places that use the most wind and solar tend to have the highest electricity costs? Why is that? Is the problem wind and solar? Or is the problem that they didn't have enough backup forms of baseload power? And so, again, I push back on the oil and gas crowd that says, well, see, this proves wind and solar isn't the cheapest. I, I, again, I, so I don't like necessarily the phrasing middle ground. You did not use the word compromise, but I think it often feels that way. We are trying to solve in a very positive way all of these related issues. I think the other part of the question is, do the major, I do not believe the majors sit at the middle of this. I think the majors sit at the spectrum that ensures we have available, affordable, I'm just going to call it baseload energy. And that's currently gasoline and diesel fuel for people that continue to drive ICE vehicles, of which that is, by the way, the vast bulk of people on earth, right? And of course, that is heavily skewed towards rich countries, the United States, 
Canada, Western Europe, Japan, I guess, fits into that bucket. There's still billions of people who are, you know, very energy poor who deserve the deserve the right to have mobility and electricity solutions. And so the oil and gas companies, the majors, sit at the portion of the energy mix that is going to satisfy those needs until the new stuff is ready. Um, as I talked about with Juan last time, I'm personally skeptical that the majors are going to, and for that matter, smaller companies in the oil and gas space are going to be the leaders on new technologies. I think we need new companies to lead on new technologies. The most obvious example of that is in the electric vehicle space. It was not General Motors, which has been working on electric vehicles for a gazillion years, or Ford, or with all due respect to the great, great, I love, a, I, we drive a BMW, I love BMWs, but BMW, Mercedes, all the great European, German auto companies, they're not the ones who led this charge. It was Tesla. And Tesla is one of the clear uh, victorious companies. I, I, I don't want to get, or we can if you want, but this is not a debate about how clean or not clean our batteries and lithium mining is an issue. I'm not here to kind of uh, support the kind of the oil industry backlash. I personally like electric vehicles. I think they are part of the solution. Um, but so far, we've got one new technology company, Tesla, that has led to charge. And I think that's going to be true on whatever we're talking about. I, I think it's absurd to think majors are going to be leading solar or wind companies, even though some are trying. Um, carbon capture, CCUS, that is an area that could be a core competency. Renewable fuels like de renewable diesel and so forth, I think that's an area that is compatible. It may make sense for them to do venture capital portfolio opportunities. I think they are going to ultimately have to sell a net zero scope one and two barrel. I think they're responsible for cleaning up methane. Uh, that is a huge area of opportunity that the oil and gas industry today can, can, can directly clean up and can have um, a discernible impact on lessening warning. Cleaning up methane with technologies and cost understandings is totally doable today. But I do not believe the majors sit at the nexus of energy transition. And I actually think it's been one of the mis either understandings, if I want to be generous, or misinformations, They're, the majors are barely important to world oil supply. Why would we possibly think that they are relevant to energy transition? And so these policies that try and force major oils or oil companies to not do what they do best, which is invest in oil and gas, which by the way, they didn't even do that great of a job on that in the last decade, as we talked about on the last podcast, the return on capital was very poor between 2010 and 2020, somewhere between zero and 5% for industry. That's a bad return on capital. So in the industry they know best, they didn't do a very good job. And so I don't believe they said that the next is this. And I think it's been one of the policy mistakes to try and put all this pressure on major oils to change. We need them to produce as much low-cost oil and gas as they can. And we need them to do it with as low of a methane, zero methane as possible, and ultimately work to scope one, scope two, net zero barrels for whatever they produce. That's a good segue into my next question, which is um, around the topic of the current uh, narrative, because it seems like the narrative has changed radically from the last time we had you on the pod. There isn't that much talk about climate change at the moment, and there is a little bit more of a push around the importance of energy security. So do you think that the energy the new energy transition movement is gone. I do not think it's gone, nor should it be gone. I, I think clearly when um, you have this Russia invasion of Ukraine, it's natural that people are going to be very focused on energy security. 
But energy transition, if done, I'm going to say correctly, um, but when I say correctly, it sounds like I have the answer. I do not have the answer. I think I'm able to articulate where it's been done incorrectly, which has basically been the strategies of the last three years, probably with all due respect, most notably in Europe, but we see elements of that here in the United States and Canada as well. Um, but I do not think energy transition is either dead, nor should it be. I think what we're seeing here is a recognition. You cannot only solve for one thing. You cannot only solve for climate. And even in that, again, as we talked about last time, as has been a feature of my Substack prior to Russia invading Ukraine, you were not on track to solve climate under the previous climate-only focused policies that some of the world had. In fact, I think we were, we were previously on track for a worst of all worlds of high and volatile commodity prices without any appreciable change to our CO2 trajectory, in part because issues like energy security, uh, availability, reliability were not being adequately addressed. Prior to Russia invading Ukraine, it was very clear that reliability in the areas that use disproportionate amounts of renewables has not been good. It's easy to blame renewables. I'm actually not sure they deserve the blame. They are what they are. They're a variable intermittent source of power. Their utilization rates have very wide ranges to them. So the problem would have been the policymakers who put in place those policies to get rid of the stuff that is dependable at the times wind and solar aren't working. So whoever decided to prematurely shut nuclear plants, whoever prematurely decided to walk away from natural gas, and for that matter, even coal. I'm not a coal proponent. Absolutely, we need to move towards lower carbon forms of energy. But you can't expect people to go without energy, which is what happens when you become ideological about these things. Environmentalists have the role of explaining the environment to us. They deserve significant credit for raising this issue of climate and warming and so forth. But to think that they're going to be the ones who put in practice business policies uh, that say we should only invest in solar wind, that, that is a huge problem. It's like asking investors today to be the ones who police the environment. That's equally absurd, right? The job of an investor is to generate returns for their, their clients, the people who invest in their funds. It's not to determine um, environmental policies. That's what governments are for. And I think there's been real misallocation of responsibility. The environmentalists are trying to run businesses by telling everyone solar and wind are low cost everywhere, and that's all we should do. Uh, investors are now trying to run environmental policy by telling BP and others how they should reallocate to virtue signaling ESG initiatives. And it's, it's, it's all messed up. <laughs> we need a more sensible conversation on this because we are trying to solve for anything. But is energy transition dead? It absolutely should not be because we need an energy transition to ensure that we have in the future lower carbon forms of energy, but that also everyone on earth who's entitled to energy availability gets it as well. You need, we need to solve for all there's no such thing as a silver lining in a war. It's a terrible situation. But I think it is highlighting that we need to address the totality of energy and climate issues and not just focus on one of them. You, you, you highlight there the, the fact that we are going to need those oil and gas reserves to provide us with, with power over the, the transition, which may take a long time. Uh, and I guess the focus has come back on those, those oil and gas reserves that the majors and, and others have. Um, do you think there's enough there that they have in the ground today to take us through that transition? Are they going to have to resume ENP again? Uh, and if so, I mean, previously, 
or our concern anyway, was that they would go and spend a lot of money and earn very poor returns on renewable energy. Uh, that's probably still a concern, but is the risk now also that they go and do that on uh, traditional E&P assets as they have, as you mentioned, in the past? So as I'm, I've personally been, again, prior to Russia, Ukraine, someone who thought oil demand had not peaked and was unlikely to peak before 2030, and it might not be until 2040. So my notional oil demand estimate was 110 million barrels a day, which is a slower growth rate than what historically would have been the case, but certainly a much higher growth rate than any of the, the net zero diehards would have, would have projected. I think if we're in an environment where Russia may be offline, they're, they are not offline today, but who knows what the future holds when you've got a major, they're the dependent on the calculation, second, third largest producer of oil in the world, obviously top two producer of natural gas, critical to Europe, you guys know all this. We don't know what their fate is. Um, and we don't know what it means for them to be a pariah state. Um, and, and so that when you have higher prices, when you have volatility, that on the margin should lower one's future demand forecast. And so in the context of somewhere between 100 and 110 million barrels a day, I actually think we have plenty of known resources. This is not like the 2000s, where it was very clear that the major oil fields that were developed during the Arab oil embargo oil crisis years were starting to peter out and we needed to find new sources of reserves. We tried deep water all over the world. We tried Arctic. We did oil sands. And it turned out a decade later, it turned out U.S. shale was the answer. Over the last decade, U.S. shale has been 80% of net oil supply. If you throw in Canada, North America has met 90%, excuse me, of net oil demand growth has been met by North America overwhelmingly by shale. I think we today have lots of known resources to address the likely demand scenarios. Now, let's say someone is more in the peak oil demand camp. Clearly, you have enough resources for someone like myself who thought there'd still be some growth. I think you have enough resources. But what is that not solving for? Who are we forgetting? As people who live in the United States and Europe, we're forgetting the, the billions of people who are far less fortunate than anybody listening to this podcast. There are 3 billion people, plus or minus, who use less energy than the typical American's refrigerator uses. That, that's ridiculous. It sounds like a joke, except it's extremely sad for those people. There's 2 billion people who will come onto Earth over the next 30 to 50 years, mostly in these same energy-poor countries. If you have a peak demand forecast, including myself, by the way, of somewhere between 100 and 110 million barrels a day, you're essentially making the call, these people will remain energy poor. There is no chance those people are going to be driving Teslas. No chance at all, right? And whatever I, whatever that BMW comes up with, GM's making a, a, Hummer, a Hummer EV. Is this even an environmental car? Right. And there's some better, the Hyundai Ionic, I think is an interesting electric vehicle. These people are going to need energy and they absolutely will take any forms of energy. So I think there's a de facto call that these people are not going to get the degree of energy and power that I honestly believe they deserve to have. Now, that's not purely a climate policy driven um, issue. It can be the nature of the governments of these countries. Perhaps they're not set up to develop economically. Perhaps the governments uh, and the people that run these countries don't distribute wealth. I mean, there's a lot, there's lots of issues well beyond the scope of an energy analyst. But what about those people? How, how the heck are you going to provide energy for them? Now, hopefully, over the next five years or 25 years, I, I'll give that as the over-under, we will develop new technologies. So will nuclear, nuclear fusion work? 
Um, we clearly need regular nuclear to be expanded in Europe and the United States. Um, natural gas is going to have to be part of that solution. And then hopefully the oil companies will figure out ways to decarbonize their barrels such that those other three to five billion people, people who are not European, people who are not American or Canadian or Japanese, uh, have the same sort of opportunity to living longer, to living healthier, and to having cleaner air. Look at a map of where air quality is good or bad. It actually fully aligns with fossil fuel usage. That is not to say fossil fuels drive clean air. I think any environmentalist would be laughing at that type of comment. It does speak to the wealth of nations, though, and that is where there is a correlation. So it is the use of energy that allows you to be stronger economically and then spend on environmental causes. Energy usage, economic health, living longer in the environment all absolutely go together. Uh, you know, and so I think we are very dependent if we want to decarbonize and provide energy for all on new technologies that don't exist yet or that haven't scaled up hydrogen is an example that we have no idea the degree to which that is going to work. Nuclear fusion, um, we don't know yet. There's a bunch of stuff that's going to have to come on. I want to circle back on, on something that you've said at the beginning of the pod and, and something that you've been touching upon in your Substack, and is the case of if we are not setting ourselves up for further geopolitical turmoil in the future by reaching out to countries um, that can be less friendly, like Venezuela at the moment, or maybe this, what we are reading about, reaching out to Iran. So by replacing production from Russia with many of these countries, aren't we setting ourselves for more problems in the, in the future? I think that's absolutely right, Juan. And I've actually put out a note over the weekend that suggested we should focus on generating more good barrels and, and have fewer bad barrels. And uh, in this note, I specifically delineated between essentially the state of Texas and the province of Alberta versus Russia and Iran. And I think there is a path to having 10 million barrels a day of net exports out of North America of oil. I'm focused here on oil. Right now, thanks to the shale revolution, as well as steady oil sands growth over the last decade, US plus Canada supply and demand are essentially in balance. That's a liquids number. There's some pluses and minuses there. I think there's a path to 10 million barrels a day of net exports. Now, in both countries, these are private en uh, enterprises. And so to some degree, governments will say there's only so much we, ca we, we can do. And I agree, it's not up to governments. Thank goodness we still practice some form of capitalism in the United States. But there has been explicit hostility from both the current US and current Canadian administrations toward things like pipeline developments. Um, and that does not say that Keystone Excel is the answer. That is not the point. That, that pipeline is probably needs to be rebranded, quite frankly. But the idea that we should be encouraging US and Canadian growth, however we do it. In the United States, we call it the bully pulpit, right? It's a private in industry. But why not have as a national objective that we are going to strive to produce all the oil that US, Canada, and our allies need? And that would include Europe. Um, hopefully, it would include a country like India, though where their allegiances are, I think, has always been a little bit of a question, but India should be brought into the fold. There are other countries in Africa and Southeast Asia that would benefit from a 10 million, and 10 million barrels a day, by the way, about equals the net exports from Russia and Iran. It's not that those barrels would go away, they would continue to get produced, it's a global, global business. 
But at least then we are not dependent on President Putin and whoever comes after him. We're not dependent on mullahs in Iran. Uh, I, I don't understand how that's not the most no-brainer thing you can do. Again, there are limits to what federal governments can do in the US and Canada. What they have been doing is creating obstacles. And especially it's on the pipeline and infrastructure side. Now, some of that comes from environmentalists. There is a need from for the federal government to push back on environmentalists that make us less safe, right? That make us more dependent on Russia and Iran. How is that okay? You wanna be an environmentalist? Go protest Russian oil. Go protest Iranian oil. Why would you protest US and Canadian oil when you are unable to protest Russian and Iranian oil? It's insane. The world uses 100 million barrels a day. We only get 20 of it from the US and Canada. Why wouldn't we want 30? And then put pressure. There should be, how can there be, how could this even be a debate? We should all be aligned that we want to push out. But this is the part of energy transition that is in the interest of environmentalists. Are you trying to tell me Russia is going to have a net zero scope one and two target? Are you going to tell me that they're going to be able to verify and identify methane leaks? So I'm critical of the oil industry for slow footing methane. I understand why they did it 10 years ago. It's not okay anymore. We should have independent verification. And these technologies are progressing. There has to be some allowance for the fact that we're not going to have perfect certainty today. Both companies and technology and environmentalists are all going to make mistakes on measuring this stuff. And there has to be some grace on that so that people are compelled to actually sign up for this stuff. But how can you possibly think that the climate and environmental outcome in Russia and Iran, and there's a whole bunch of other countries we could add to that list that I'll save for another day, um, that it's going to be better. There's no way it's going to be better. Go protest those other places. In the meantime, let's assist the cause of availability, affordability, and security. I'm in favor of banning SUVs. There's plenty of other things you can do. But the idea that you want to restrict supply in friendly places like the state of Texas and the province of Alberta and think you're not going to end up in the situation of more oil out of Russia and Iran, you're insane. Now, in the case of Venezuela, I do hope that country gets its act together because that is actually great coal flow oil resource that the US refiners historically have been set up to run. Venezuela was a huge success story in the 1990s. And I hope for the benefit of Venezuelan people that at some point that country can get back on track. I presume that requires a different government than it has today. I'm not the world's foremost authority on Venezuela geopolitics, other than to say, out of all these lists of challenging places, Venezuela is the one that I would hope can turn itself around at some point in the future. Um. How long would it take for, say, U.S. and Canadian authorities to put policies in place that would allow those 10 million barrels to hit the markets? Because if it's about infrastructure, that just takes time. And in, in between, we don't know for how long the Russian situation will, will go on. Thank you for the opportunity to clarify that remark. So that was a 2030 goal. So I think these things take plus or minus a decade to happen. And so if you go through the pieces... I think the U.S. shale industry, which again is overwhelmingly going to be Permian Basin in Texas, they're on track to achieve the five million barrel a day cumulative growth contribution to that ten million dollar number, ten million barrel a day number that I articulated. I think there's always things that governments can do to get in the way of that, but that frankly is more up to the companies. It's a three to five percent growth rate, 
So it doesn't even require necessarily some huge change in the capital. They still need to be profitable. I actually think for shale, the onus is actually on the oil companies to figure out methane. It's a thing I keep coming back to. This is their responsibility. And I would actually say with that sort of get off our backs with all your hostility feeling that oil companies have, the quid pro quo or the deal, if you will, would be that there needs to be a much tougher uh, methane. I hate to use the word regulation because ideally it would be self-regulated, but it can't just be the leading companies who I believe are making good faith promises to reduce their methane. It actually has to be industry-wide. No one should get off the hook. Uh, we should. I, I use the word zero methane. An engineer would push back on the word zero. Uh, that that's probably more aspirational. But you can do a lot uh, more than you are doing today as an industry. I think the parts that need help is the Canadian piece. So of my ten, uh, a little around three comes from Canada, and that is where while you're currently able to truck and reel it out of the oil sands, how, how is that good? That does slow the pace of investment because the differentials are wider. It is undoubtedly worse for the environment to have oil sands trucked and it's ridiculous. It's trucked and railed out of Canada. You need pipeline infrastructure export capacity to the west, to the east, and to the south. So even if if I was Canada, I don't know that I'd want to be solely dependent on U.S. markets. But the pipeline to the west, it's called Trans uh, Trans Mountain. Uh, that I think is in some sort of degree of progress of getting completed, perhaps. It was historically called Keystone XL. I think that's too toxic of a word, so call it call it the Freedom Pipeline or whatever you know the the, the Net Zero Pipeline, whatever the heck you want to call it, call it that. Um, and then some pipeline east, Canada, the Canada infrastructure needs help. Um, it seems improbable that the current governments in both countries are on track to do that, but who knows? I mean, this is a very traumatic situation going on right now, and so hopefully they will, you know, have a mindset shift. I think the third piece was actually demand reduction. Um, and that is, again, the biggest missed opportunity I've seen. This is particularly true of the United States is fuel economy. I think with a period of, I, I call it a super vol environment where we spike to some high number, but then we pull back down. I think that's the kind of environment where you will see Americans naturally shift back away from SUVs towards more fuel efficient cars. But man, there is a lot that could be done to accelerate that. Our current fuel economy standards are a complete joke in terms of how they're actually executed. And that has been bipartisan. It's, it's easy for people to say Trump rolled him back and Obama did this and Bush did something different. It has been a bipartisan effort over 40 years to basically excuse SUVs, which do face higher miles per gallon, but they also get heavier every year. There's a huge disparity between real-world driving and lab driving. And so there's been a built-in excuse, essentially, to obviate, we've missed our fuel economy targets by 80 to 90%. What we're trying to do here is de-link healthy GDP growth from oil demand growth. And fuel economy is the best and fastest way to do it while you're allowing for the electric vehicle market to build up, which does take time. It is still absolutely a car for rich or mass affluent. And only because we have highly developed credit markets in the US can someone who may be middle class have an opportunity to make car payments and, and perhaps buy electric vehicles, but they're still luxury vehicles, make no mistake. And we probably need battery breakthrough technology like solid state batteries to, to really get this to scale up where it's the preponderance of the market. But I think that will happen, but it's just not going to happen by 2030. So all this, we have to deal with everything immediately. It's been unhealthy to discussion and debate. 
We are absolutely, I believe, as a society committed to decarbonizing, but you got to do it on a timescale that's actually possible. You can't make stuff up. You can't make up technology progress that doesn't actually exist. This stupid debate that you're going to skip blue hydrogen to go straight to green hydrogen is absurd. That seems to be more of a European debate. Like, come on, people need actual energy. It's, it's not fair to the masses. It's not fair to everyone who is not affluent. The top 5% and 10% can deal with this. Everyone else cannot. Like, have be realistic about this stuff. Does, being realistic does not mean sacrificing long-term carbon reduction goals, but it also doesn't mean creating a sense of panic and, and alarm that just causes a worst of all world worlds outcome where you don't actually deal with climate, let alone anything else, and you end up where we are today. So if this is 10 years away from happening, if it does happen and the stars align and U.S. and Canadian governments push for it and, and capital allocation goes in that direction, what happens in between? There's no great solutions in the short term. So Russia currently exports about 7 million barrels a day. Um, you know, about five of that is Europe, historically U.S., and, and sort of related places. It's It'd be very difficult for that to... Now, it's not actually disrupted. So right now, what you're seeing is sort of a self-sanctioning going on, where, and I'll actually give them credit, BP was the first to pull out. You can debate whether they should have pulled out 10 years ago, but they were the first to pull out, at least in this current crisis environment, and it caused everybody else to pull out, but not just uh, Total or you know, you know, Royal Dutch Shell, not just oil companies, but McDonald's and Starbucks, um, you know, I, I, it was a quote on a, on the Grant Williams podcast, I think, where no no company could prove to be to the right, to the right of oil companies when it came to sort of economic moralism. So I will give BP credit uh, in this small sense for kicking off the wave of divesting of Russia. But what does that mean for Russian supply? There, the history of pariah states growing production is a, is a list of essentially zero, right? So. Venezuela was producing over 3 million barrels a day. Today, it's half a million barrels a day. Iran, prior to the Iranian revolution, was producing uh, north of five, close to 6 million barrels a day. It has been between two and 4 million barrels a day ever since. And it's, you know, it's 40 years since the Iranian revolution. They've been a pariah state the entire time. Um, Russia, while you can say they were never on the list of like most popular countries that you love to go visit. They, they were not on everyone's, hey, I love Russia kind of list. Um, they were not a pariah state. Uh, I think in the West, we have sort of generally not been fans of President Putin. That's certainly true of Americans. Probably dates back to the Cold War and the vestiges of that. But Russia itself has been a viable state, at least from an energy and other basic commodity standpoint. And as you know, there's plenty of other stuff Russia and Ukraine produce, like wheat, um, like other industrial commodities that the world cannot currently do without, uh, at least as it relates to oil. It is not, for the most part, sanctioned today, but there's going to be a real pressure. And so I, I worry less that we lose, I mean, we could, but I worry less that we lose 5 million barrels a day of exports tomorrow. That's possible, but I'd say that's tail risk kind of stuff, but it's more the slow erosion in Russian supply. So we're not on track to replace Russian supply declining by some amount over 10 years. Maybe their economy implodes faster than supply in the next one or two years. Like there's just a whole bunch of variables, but the current self-sanctioning, that is causing a loss of supply to the market that is almost irreplaceable today. So Saudi, 
probably has some surge capacity. But even the core OPEC countries prior to Russia and Ukraine, part of my call was that they are closer to being at their effective spare capacity. And you saw, again, prior to Russia, uh, you saw them starting to miss their quota increases or their monthly production increase relative to what they were allowed to do. So there's lots of signs that some of the leading uh, Middle East countries that otherwise have been very dependable oil suppliers were kind of getting near the limit. So it's there's no there's no great answer. The answer is only it's a very unfortunate thing to say. It's demand destruction. That is that is the near term solution. You got low above ground inventories. You got low spare capacity, and it would take time to make up for any any near term shortfall in Russia. I guess we talked about where maybe the West gets forced to go as a result of what's going on, but I'm interested in terms of where Russia might get forced to go in order to get demand for what it's it's looking to sell. Is there any anything to talk about there in terms of impact on energy transition? I mean, given the given the great need the whole world has towards having available oil supply, I think the baseline assumption for most people is that let's just say the U.S. and Europe at some point cut off Russia um, in terms of uh, taking the imports. It's obviously be quite challenging for Europe to do that, and I'm, I guess, understanding of why they haven't. Uh, and the presumption is that China and India will get those flows, but. It's the classic sort of easier said than done. So exactly what is the nature of Chinese and Indian refineries? Exactly how oil is a physical business. It doesn't operate in the cloud. Even the cloud, by the way, doesn't operate in the cloud. There's there's no actual cloud, right? It's a bunch of data servers in a whole bunch of different countries that guess what they need? Energy, right? Metaverse meets universe. And we're seeing that real time today. Uh, oil is a physical business, so you don't just get to say the set, you know, U.S. and uh, Europe blockade ban Russian oil or Russia self-sanctions it to these countries. It's going to freely flow to China and India. Clearly, some will make it there, but will the totality of it make it there? And and look, I don't know the answer. I suspect some of it will get reabsorbed because there'll be great pressure, especially if oil spikes higher, for someone to take those flows. But what happens when it starts backing up? What happens when you force shut in a fields? These are not always newer fields. If they're old fields, do they come back? Do they require capex? Again, the history in pariah states is when you start having problems for whatever reason, you sometimes never you've never gotten Iranian oil supply back. It's it's been forty years. You know, Venezuela it's down eighty percent, right? Uh, Libya Libya is not back to its one point four million barrel a day pre Gaddafi highs. Iraq is probably Iraq may be the closest example that prior to the Iran-Iraq war of 1980, I want to say Iraq was at like four and a half, five million barrels a day. I don't think they were at six. And they're probably the closest 40 years later of getting back. Um, and so I think that's that's going to be the, the question for, for Russia. How can the world adjust? And to some degree, you will accelerate. Movement or what you'll have to, you'll have a weaker economic situation, most likely. But does this catalyze the next technologies? Does this catalyze um, a renewed nuclear investment wave? That takes time, but that would be a good thing. Like, look at all the major change. The last time we made major changes in the Western world was after the Arab oil embargo used. We stopped using oil as a power generation fuel. fuel. That was the time where. Um, General Motor and Ford gas guzzlers, I think it was Chrysler at the time, we stopped buying those in America. We started buying Japanese imports, as the phrasing went, the, the 
the Toyota Camrys of the world, the Honda Accords. These were much more fuel efficient. Americans made a huge shift. Uh, we tried to limit the speed limit to 55 miles per hour. Sammy Hager has a famous song about that. His song, I Can't Drive 55, which came out in 1984, basically started the SUV wave, right? We, we had enough of it, but we, we, we went to fuel economy during the last Arab oil embargo year. So again, there's never a silver lining to war. That is very disrespectful to the people enduring war. But can you have fundamental change to demand? Can you have stimulation of new technology? Can you have investments in things you need to have investment in, like nuclear, like natural gas? And by the way, it absolutely should all come methane-free. So you hold oil companies accountable to the ESG standards they claim to have, uh, and you do it in a sensible way that makes sense for society so that people have affordable, available supply. These are the kind of things that can happen. They all take time, and no one should be under any illusion, which, again, is a misinformation coming out from some of the energy transition folks, that is easy or pain-free. It is absolutely painful, but it is absolutely necessary to go through. So again, I, I remain an optimist, and for, perhaps even more of an optimist, that energy transition is, is going to be on track here. It's going to have to be. You, you, you're not going to be able to make up for Russian supply. You're going to have to um, accelerate transition. If you were in charge, just for the sake of the example, on German energy policy today, what would your short, medium, and long-term plan of action be? You know, Juan, ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch. Mein Onkel wohnt in München. Meine Schwester studiert in Freiburg und ich habe Deutsch sechs Jahre im Hochschule studiert. Aber ich vergesse sehr viel, so I'll switch back to English here. And I know as an American, I always really dislike when non-Americans weigh in on what America should do. I think people can critique American oil companies or any aspects of what the country does, but the sort of, what should America do as a country? Um, so I'm going to refrain from that, giving advice to, 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 to Germany, despite having this clear love of Germany and some of its heritage, um, and just say this. I think any country um, needs to be self-reflective about what's worked and what hasn't worked. Like So like, if you went to overwhelming amounts of wind and solar, um, but you didn't kind of contract for non-Russian gas, and you also chose to shut down your nuclear plants, Something about all of that needs to be reevaluated. And it is definitely not my place to tell the German people they should restart their nuclear plants. That would be my opinion, but it's actually their decision. If they don't want to do that, are they okay with either being out of power, which no one's okay with being that, or are they okay with more coal or natural gas? There are no near-term solutions that are easy here, but these are the kind of choices they were always on track to make because it never made sense to go to overwhelming amounts of wind and solar while you are shutting down the stuff that you can still depend on. That is not the fault of wind and solar. It's the fault of politicians and bureaucrats. And it's a different mentality I know in Europe, but the regular people of the world need to push back on the experts who are not taking responsibility for their policies. This is not the fault of wind and solar. I gotta keep saying that. It is the fault of people who prematurely retired a bunch of other stuff that you needed and didn't recognize that these intermittent sources of power are intermittent, right? It's, it's, it's in what we know about it. It's, that's not a mystery, right? That's not that we didn't, oh my gosh, the wind didn't blow today or didn't blow for an extended period. That weather patterns are variable. For, for, we're going through climate change. I mean, for goodness sakes, right? You know, and so 
Um, it's up to the German people to decide that. I think there are some encouraging signs of seeing the German people are going to spend more on defense. I'm not a military ex expert, but I'm just saying there's some kind of major mindset shift changes that seem to be occurring. I, I do think the sort of elite bureaucracy that seems to be more accepted in Europe, it's definitely not an American kind of thing. Um, that's the part that I find mystifying as an outsider and as an American why you'd want to be dependent on the EU, the ECB, or these kind of you know un seemingly unelected people. Maybe there are elections that I'm unaware of. Um, and I, 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 there's a need to listen to regular people on this stuff who need energy, who need any form of power. Uh, and that's true in the United States, it's true in Canada, and it's gonna be true in Europe. So I guess I'll, I'll be optimistic that clearly, I'm gonna stereotype here, German people are smart and they're gonna figure this out. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I think we'll end up with good outcomes in Germany, but there's no easy solutions in the near term. That's really interesting. Arjun Murthy, thank you very much for your time and for coming back to the Value Perspective podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and your colleagues. Thanks, Arjun. Thank you, Andrew.